It's snowing outside. England are out of the World Cup, and we're about to see the army on the streets. I don't know how I feel about it. How are you feeling about it, Ash? Today, I feel Moroccan, Michael. That's how I feel. Today, I feel like. Oh, actually, I was just looking at cheap flights to the Canary Islands, but today, I, I, I would like to feel Moroccan because it's too cold here. But it's fine. We'll get over it. We've got lots of interesting stuff to talk about today. I should get over it. I just feel like I'm going to be coughing a little bit in the stories, although not any kind of serious sickness. You don't need to worry about that. We face a dramatic week of industrial action with nurses, rail workers and Royal Mail staff all due to go out on strike. But instead of responding by getting around the negotiating table, the government are calling in the army to help. According to a Downing Street spokesperson, 600 army personnel are currently training to stand in for striking ambulance drivers later in the month. It's unclear how much help the troops will be, though. General Richard Barron said this to Sky this morning. The military are trained to be the, the military. So, of course, they can, they can drive complicated vehicles and everyone has a degree of battlefield first aid training. But that's designed to deal with injuries from, from fighting. And, and where soldiers, sailors, airmen and Marines are going to need more training is when they're dealing with, for example, for, with, with the elderly, which don't normally feature in that way on the battlefield. So you're going to ask a great deal of individual service personnel's goodwill and adaptability to pick up really quite complicated jobs very quickly and see us through this difficult period. Representatives of ambulance drivers are also not particularly impressed by the plans. Alan Lofthouse is a national officer for the trade union Unison. Now, all of our uh, ambulance workers uh, in Unison respect the military and respect the support that they're offering. But of course, uh, as your, your correspondent called us, uh, ambulance drivers is, is far from the truth. Actually, they're highly trained urgent and emergency care workers who know how to work in the NHS. And the military can't just be put in place of ambulance workers and, and expect that the service is going to run as normal. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a great offer by the military, but it's not going to go anywhere near, um, you know, uh, stopping the, the, the strikes and the walkouts that are due to happen on the 21st. Meanwhile, the government is under fire for refusing to negotiate with the nursing union. And that pressure increased on Sunday when the Royal College of Nurses suggested they would postpone this week's strike if the government came to the table. This is how Health Secretary Steve Barclay responded on the BBC. We do have an independent pay review body and it's important both sides respect that independent body and it includes trade union representation uh, on it. Uh, that's what we've done. We've honoured in full the pay review body and it, that's additional to last year when uh, the rest of the public sector had a pay freeze prioritising the NAH, NHS uh, with the extra 3%. So okay. we have an independent body for a reason, and that's what we've honoured. OK, but the nurses say they would be prepared to pause their strike this week. And there'll be people watching this morning who've got appointments cancelled and operations cancelled. They're desperate for that strike not to happen. They say they'll pause it if you will sit down in a room with them and talk money. Not not finish it, not, not come to any conclusions, but just talk to them. Surely it's worth sitting down and talking money with them. Well, I'm, as I say, I'm very happy to, to talk to them, but in terms of pay, we pay. have an independent process. We'll get on to how independent that pay body really is later on in the show. For now, let's focus on the issue of negotiations. General Secretary of the Royal College of Nursing, Pat Cullen, said this to ITV this morning. If he gets round a table with us and has realistic, honest talks, there's a strong possibility that I will be able to go back to my council and say, 
um, I recommend that we avert the strikes and continue those negotiations. And I would also say that council will most certainly not be unreasonable about that. But I can do that right now, this very minute after I finish this call. Um, my door is absolutely wide open, and my door is the Royal College of Nursing door. All right, and did okay. I pick up the signals right yesterday? Are you basically signalling to the government that obviously you want an increased offer, but you are prepared to consider an offer that's lower than the money that you've asked for? Is that right? Look, it would not be for me to negotiate, Richard, on the airwaves. I'm definitely not going to do that. That's for myself and the Health Secretary, or through conciliation with ACAS to get around the table and do. But we will not be found wanting in getting in there and having those discussions. Now, we've had an update since those interviews this morning. Hugh Pym is the BBC's health editor. And he tweeted, Royal College of Nursing to meet Health Secretary Steve Barclay later today. And the Royal College of Nursing spokesperson says, we have replied positively to his email and we will attend in the hope the government is now serious about negotiating. Now, the government's line remains that Steve Barclay won't be negotiating about pay. So it's hard to see how those talks will in fact, lead to the strikes getting called off. But obviously, it remains to be seen. Ash, how do you see all this playing out this week? Maybe what I can do is shed a bit of light on what the Tory conundrum is, because they're not just facing strikes in one particular sector. It is across the public sector and, of course, in parts of the private sector as well. And in the private sector, you actually have seen concessions being made on pay, most notably within the food sector. Uh, you've also got the ongoing strike, of course, with Royal Mail, you've got the RMT, you've got teachers balloting, you've got lecturers who've been out for, you know, really, you know, quite a long time now. And of course, you've got nurses and you've got ambulance workers. So that is a conservative government, which isn't dealing with one individual dispute or two individual disputes. What they're reckoning with is the direct consequences of their throttling of pay the last 12 years coming to a head now because one, it's been a really long time without real terms pay increases and two, it's happening in the middle of a cost of living crisis, which is being driven by energy related inflation. So that's why you've got this bizarre pantomime of the government speaking out of one side of their mouths and going, of course, we want to negotiate and it's these horrible intransigent unions who aren't doing it. And then on the other side going, we're absolutely not going to give in to your, your demand for more pay. And even where there is room to actually settle a dispute, which is what you've seen with the negotiations with the RMT, the government in that area have intervened to say, no, we're actually going to block this pay offer. And the reason why is because if any one of these unions are seen to win, then we'll all have to win. We'll all have to have those increased pay offers, which are being funded for out of generalized taxation. And the ideal for that would, have, would, of course, be a tax on high incomes and a tax on wealth. Or you would have to see a dent in the profit margins and shareholder dividends for privatized companies like Royal Mail. And that is something which the government are ideologically opposed to doing. This isn't a strategy which is new to the Conservative Party. When you think about what was going on in the 1980s, the reason why Margaret Thatcher took on the National Union of Mine Workers in the way that she did is that she saw that as being a generalized defeat for the trade union movement. What's different here is that while, yes, you've got a particularly prominent 
union in the form of the RMT and a, a particularly prominent union leader in the form of Mick Lynch, you've got this, this wave of strike action happening across the public sector. And the second thing is that Margaret Thatcher wanted to defeat the trade unions to implement a series of economic reforms, which shifted us away from a productive economy towards a heavily financialized economy, one which was based on the ownership of assets rather than the making and the selling of goods and the receiving of wages. She had, it wasn't, a, you know, an economic vision that either me or you would think was a good thing, Michael, or a thing that was good for the country, but at least it was, it was coherent and it made a particular kind of sense within the context. This was when neoliberalism was in the ascendant across the global north. Now, the Tories don't have anything like that at the moment. And in many ways, that they're kind of an outlier. When you look at what's going on in the United States and you, you look at some degree of redistribution, not, not a huge amount, but you know, some degree of redistribution. When you look at the complexion of governments across Europe and when you look at also what's going on in Latin America, Britain is very much an outlier in trying to cling to this way of doing things. So I don't think that the government is in a particularly strong position when you look at the international context. And then when you look at the politicking of it, the fact that Rishi Sunak is kind of marooned amongst an ocean of backbenchers who hate him, he's also personally in quite a weak position. So that's what I think explains the, the government's response to these strikes. It's, it's their own weakness and the fact that politically they're being beset from all angles here. I mean, do you think, because on one level, it does seem like they've kind of asked for these strikes. So if you think about what's happened in Scotland, so in Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon has sort of offered or opened negotiations with the nursing union there and offered sort of provisionally 7% or 7.5% pay increases. It hasn't been accepted yet, but the strikes have been postponed. Um, lots of industrial action, which we're about to see in England and Wales and Northern Ireland, actually, the nurses are on strike today, hasn't been seen. In, in Scotland. Does that suggest that the government kind of want this here and potentially, you know, potentially as a distraction? Obviously, everyone was talking about Liz Truss and the disastrous budget and people's mortgage rates going up. We were already going to have a winter which was disastrous for the NHS. You know, we already had, you know, completely unprecedented 12-hour waits in, in A&E, 40,000 or so people waiting over 12 hours for A&E. And that would have been a story which was purely about conservative failure and now it's going to be a story to some degree about the rights and wrongs of striking workers. Do you think maybe that's why they've, well, I suppose, do you think they have provoked this? And do you think they are happy that this is now going ahead? Well, I think you're right to point out that Nicola Sturgeon has gone for a very different strategy here. And part of that is that, you know, quite frankly, a lot of her electoral base will be public sector workers. That's not a section of the electorate she can afford to lose, whereas the Conservatives, that's not actually where they draw, you know, their core cohorts of voters from. I think that things can be two things at once. I think that they genuinely don't want to give these pay increases. They don't want to give into one set of demands and then have to do it across the board when it comes to the workforce. And I think that there is an element of them going, okay, well, maybe we can spin this to turn the public against striking workers, make it against you know, strikers versus strivers and that kind of narrative. I think, though, the reason why that's going to be more difficult to do is that in a context where everybody is feeling the limitations of their pay packet, shall we say, 
it's harder to go, well, these people are unreasonable for wanting more because, well, everybody wants more. Everybody feels that they've, they've not got a fair deal. And then the second thing is that when you haven't protected asset prices in the way that you've just described because of Liz Truss's and Quasi Kwarteng's wholly unforced errors, you've got a lack of goodwill being extended to the government. So yes, you're right. In, in a way, this draws a bit of attention away from what's going to be happening in the winter crisis. But I think putting the, the attention bang on the inadequacies of people's wages isn't necessarily the fight that they want to have either. Next story. As swathes of the public sector go on strike this winter, the Tories are relying on a few central sound bites to explain why they can't give in to union demands. But I wasn't convinced those arguments stack up to scrutiny, and they mainly concern economics, so I called upon Jonathan Portez to fact-check them. Now, Jonathan is a pretty big deal in the field. He served as chief economist at the Department for Work and Pensions from 2002 to 2008, and then was chief economist at the cabinet office from 2008 to 2011. He's now a professor in economic and public policy at King's College London. As I say, lots of credentials there. This is the first Tory claim I asked Jonathan to fact check. It's from James Cleverly, the foreign secretary. He's speaking about nurses' pay. The clues in the name, it's independent and it reviews pay awards But then they're not the ones bodies. who control the purse strings. They're not the ones who make the decision. It's, it's a, a recommendation they make. It's up to the government. It is a recommendation. Re- it's a recommendation. And, and a recommendation. It's a recommendation and a recommendation that we have um, uh, agreed to implement. But it, it just doesn't seem that there's any way to resolve this then. If, if the government is saying we are simply not going to move from what the independent pay review body says... We are not willing to negotiate at all with the nurses about, about what they believe. Sorry, this question is going around in circles. The well, point is, is I, don't, I feel but the like point I'm is, not getting a straight answer. No, I'm <laughs> sorry, you're not getting an answer you like. No, but that's I'm different. Just, I'm, I'm just giving you a straight struggling answer. Struggling to understand <laughs> why. The independent pay how, review how bodies. How do we resolve it? The independent pay review bodies were created to resolve differences between uh, the, uh, uh, the, the bodies that are seeking uh, pay, whether they be in the health profession, teaching profession, other professions, and the government that hold the purse strings. They are the adjudicator. They were created. They are independent of government. They are staffed by experts. That is why they exist. Mm-hmm. They make recommendations. And in this instance, the government has accepted the recommendation fully. So that was James Cleverly using a line we'll, we have heard a lot over the past days and we will hear a lot over the next few days, I am sure. Jonathan Portez, I want to know your verdict. He's saying this is what the independent pay review body has said. They're independent. We accept what they're saying. The union should accept what they're saying. Everyone should accept what they're saying. What do you make of that particular claim? Well, there are two points about this. The first is that, as was clear from that discussion, the pay review bodies only make a recommendation. It's the right of either side to reject that recommendation and seek to to get a different outcome. And in fact, Quite recently, in fact, when Jeremy Hunt was health secretary, the government simply ignored what the independent pay review body said, indeed, about NHS pay and imposed a significantly lower increase. So the government has never taken the view that this is a binding recommendation on either side and indeed has in the past um, not followed the recommendation. So the precedent here is, is quite clear. It's a recommendation and either side is free to reject it and to seek to, uh, to, to come to a different outcome. The second point is that the pay review bodies are independent and they do, I think, do an excellent job of, uh, 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 within the parameters they're set of setting out sensible 
you know, a sensible approach to pay. But they do have to take those parameters as given. And in this case, the government very made very clear broadly what the overall envelope was. They weren't asking for the pay reviews body on how pay reviews body view on how much money overall should go into the settlement or into the NHS as a whole. They were taking that as given. So obviously they were constrained to a significant extent. And of course, if you actually read the pay review body's recommendation, as I have, you'll see that they're quite clear that there are significant recruitment and retention difficulties in uh, the NHS and in particular in the nursing part of the NHS. And had they been given by government a remit which allowed them to make a recommendation which went some way towards addressing those staffing difficulties by increasing pay, no doubt they would have. They weren't in a position to be able to do that. So this is simply a, a smokescreen, I'm afraid. What's the point in an independent pay review body if they don't get to decide the budget? Because, I mean, when you're asking for, a, for an increase in your wages, I mean, essentially, when it comes to a public sector organisation, probably different in the private sector, but in the public sector, you're essentially saying, government, you need to fund the NHS more because the nurses aren't going on strike because they want to divert money away from capital spending and building hospitals to their wages. They want the budget for the NHS increase. So the, is the, the pay body issue just a complete red herring? I think it is in this case. I do think, in general, the payroll bodies do serve a number of very useful purposes. One of those useful purposes, however, as you say, is not setting the overall budget. They compile a lot of evidence on what is needed to recruit and retain. They make important recommendations about what the structure should be, about progression, you know, about the differentials between different bits of the, the salary structure. There's all sorts of important, really important technical work that helps the public sector run better. But ultimately, if the government isn't giving enough money, then there's nothing much they can do about that. So in this particular context, they are not the right body to say whether the government should be giving a significant amount more money in order to fund nurses pay. That's not their job. They do have an important job, and I do think they are very useful. But that is not the job. Let's move on to a different claim now. This is Rishi Sunak speaking about why he doesn't think public sector workers should get pay rises in line with inflation. The government is always going to try and act fairly and reasonably, and that's why we accepted in full the recommendations of the independent bodies that advise a government on the appropriate levels of pay in the public sector. But what I'm not going to do is ask ordinary families up and down the country to pay an extra £1,000 a year to meet the pay demands of the union bosses. That wouldn't be right and it wouldn't be fair. So government ministers have been clear, we've heard it again from many of them, that if public sector unions were to get pay rises in line with inflation, it would cost every household in Britain a £1,000. How would you respond to, to that, Jonathan? Well, they seem to have just made this number up, I'm afraid. Um, and I am 90% sure that in due course, the independent UK stats authority will say the basis for this calculation is very, very dodgy at best, um, as they did uh, um, um, just a day or two ago about another claim made by ministers. The simplest way of looking at this is to say, well, look, the overall public sector pay bill is about £230 billion. So a 10% pay rise is probably about £23 billion. But of course, the government has already made uh, pay offers, which are, depending on which bit of the public sector you look at, 2 3 5% or whatever. So the cost of meeting the pay demands would probably be in somewhere in the region of, of 
14 billion. Now that adds up in arithmetic terms to roughly 500 per pounds per household. But that also ignores the fact that, of course, the public sector pay workers, if they got that right, the money wouldn't go straight in their pay packets because they pay tax on that and that goes straight back to the government. So depending on you, how you calculate it, a better approximation is probably that uh, it would be perhaps three or four hundred pounds per household would be the cost of giving an inflation linked pay rise to all public sector pay workers this year. Now, I mean, I think we do have to recognize, you know, and I'll be going back to my sort of orthodox economist hat on this, that, you know, there are limited resources, there are constraints in, you know, we can borrow, you can argue about exactly how much we borrow in a given year, but over the longer term, more pay for public sector workers does mean more tax for everybody. There is no getting around that in the medium to long run. I think that actually, given the pressures on public services over the medium to long term, we are going to need to have to pay more tax. And I do think politicians ought to be upfront about that. But the thousand pound figure is, is really an invention. Um, and when the Treasury, in response to questions, tried to come up with a, a way of justifying it, um, it was absolutely clear to everybody who saw that, that they were trying to come up with a sort of exposed rationalization for a number that ministers had simply made up. And it seems to me there's also, you know, a, another problem here. So even if we take your number, £300, you're suggesting could, could be what it costs sort of per household, the tax system is supposed to be progressive, right? So it shouldn't be the case that if you increase public spending and then divide it by the number of households, we all end up paying 300 quid. What it should be is that rich households are paying a thousand quid extra and poor households are paying potentially nothing extra. And then people in the middle are paying 200 pounds or something like that, right? Yes, you're right. Um, obviously, this is that would be just an average and richer people in a progressive system, richer people would pay more and poorer people would pay less. That said, I do think, you know, the, the fact is that Better public services do mean we, in the long run, we will all have to pay somewhat more tax with those of us who can pay more paying somewhat more and those paying somewhat less. But there is going to be a cost. Let's look at one more Tory claim about these strikes. This is Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor. We have to be very careful. We recognise the position the unions hold is completely sincere um, because of the challenge of 11% inflation. On the other hand, we also have a sincerely held position, which is that we don't want to do anything that would lock in that high inflation rate for a long time to come. So the right answer in a situation like this is to follow an independent process where someone independent looks at the union's position, looks at the government's position and comes to a fair compromise. And that's what we think should happen. And that's why we are supporting the independent pay review body processes. So that was Jeremy Hunt saying that the government have to follow the independent pay review body's recommendations, which we've we've talked about before. Otherwise, it could lock in high levels of inflation. So he's saying if they negotiate with the unions, if they concede to the unions that pay should increase by more than, say, the sort of three to four to five percent that they seem to be offering the public sector unions, then that could lock in runaway inflation. I mean, how would you respond to that? Well, it's not in principle a crazy worry that if you gave very significant increases at or above inflation that you would be raising wage expectations across the whole economy. It is true that part of this inflation is most of this inflation is driven by energy prices, which just means that we as a country are poorer. And that means that on average, we have to accept that real wages 
will fall for, for most of us. But the fact is, of course, that actually at the moment, wage increases in the private sector are running at six or six and a half percent on average, whereas average earnings in the public sector are only going up by about two and a half percent. So to the extent that inflation is being driven by wages, and there's really very little evidence of that at all across the board with even private sector wages so far behind inflation, they certainly aren't being driven by public sector wages. And it, it really just doesn't make any sense from a, just as a basic common sense proposition to suggest that if you rate of increase in the public sector, somewhat closer to that that people in the private sector are already getting, that that would somehow embed inflationary pressures or inflationary expectations in the economy. It simply doesn't add up. On the contrary, what we are seeing is that people are leaving the public sector. The NHS is losing staff. We've seen a sharp fall in the number of applications for teacher training and so on because public sector wages are falling behind private sector wages for people with similar sort of skills or qualifications or so on. So I really don't think that as an argument in current conditions makes any sense at all from an economic perspective. And is there another problem with it that this is the public sector, right? So my understanding is one of the reasons why a wage price spiral happens is because if people's wages go up, that means the costs of goods and services go up because, you know, labor is a factor of production. In the NHS, like if we start paying nurses more, that's not going to mean that we all have to pay more for, for operations or whatever, because this is funded by taxation. It's not funded out of our pockets on a day-to-day -day basis. Is there is there anything to that? So in the public sector, the way that mechanism would work is if the public sector was paying, giving increases significantly above the private sector and in a tight labor market was attracting people who would otherwise have gone into private sector jobs to come into the public sector for the better pay, then you could see that would drive up wage inflation in the private sector and hence inflation across the board, right? But there, that's not what's happening at the moment. It's quite the reverse is what's happening. People are leaving the public sector because they get better rates in the private sector. It's not theoretically impossible. It's just not remotely what's happening at the moment or what would be likely to happen if the government gave somewhat better offers to people in the public sector. And before we move on, if you want to become a regular supporter, go to navaramedia.com slash support. Straight on. A new report endorsed by Michael Gove has attacked Navarra Media. The report is written by the conservative think tank Policy Exchange, and it attacks the New York Times podcast, The Trojan Horse Affair. Now, that podcast was very critical of Michael Gove. And to jog your memory of what it was about, here's a clip. The letter looked to be a secret communique between Islamic extremists who'd been infiltrating the city schools in a supposed plot called Operation Trojan Horse. The letter was bizarre, unsigned, incoherent, badly Xeroxed, yet still, it sparked one of the biggest school scandals in British history. Government investigators descended on Birmingham. The country beefed up its counter-terror policy. By the time it all died down, schools were revamped, teachers lost their jobs, some people were banned for life from education. The fallout has been huge. Prime Minister David Cameron, as we said, is calling a special meeting of the government's extremism task force. The former head but what I always found suspicious about this whole affair is that this dodgy letter suggesting extremists were taken over our schools. Nobody ever found out who wrote it or why. Remarkably, none of the investigators even tried. So I convinced Brian Reid over here that we should go for it. 
The podcast was a big success, reaching number one in the UK and the US. And it was embarrassing for Michael Gove. He was education secretary at the time of the Trojan horse scandal. And the podcast heavily implies that he launched inquiries into Muslim teachers and school governors because he was Islamophobic. And he's pretty pissed off about it. In the forward to the policy exchange report, which he co-authored with ex-Theresa May advisor Nick Timothy, Michael Gove wrote this. So they write this in the forward. There is a well-organized campaign that seeks to undermine our counter-extremism work and the government's counter-radicalization strategy, Prevent. Their attempt to rewrite the history of Trojan Horse was given fresh wind earlier this year by a podcast series from Serial and the New York Times, which has taken a peculiar stance towards Britain in recent years, repeatedly portraying this country as an insular backwater whose inhabitants are drowning in a tide of nostalgia, racism, and bad food. Um, They go on to say, the facts of the Trojan Horse scandal were established in independent reports by Ofsted, Peter Clark and Ian Kershaw. Those facts are not open to debate, for they are facts. It should not be necessary to reassert what happened in a new report like this. But thanks to campaigners and useful idiots in publications like the New York Times, it sadly is. This is an excellent report and we should consider it the final word. Now, it does seem a little bit arrogant to say that a report which says that you acted perfectly at every opportunity should be definitive and we should accept it as the final word. But there we are. These are not modest people. Now, you can see there that both Michael Gove and Nick Timothy seem pretty annoyed with the New York Times. But in the policy exchange report itself, Navarra also gets a few mentions. So here's one example. A significant number of tweets about the podcast raised criticisms of the Conservative Education Secretary at the time, Michael Gove, for websites such as Navarra Media and one of its most prominent journalists, Ash Sarkar. This became a mini-campaign, with Sarkar interviewing Saeed and Reid and her organisation repeatedly promoting that interview on social media. Pretty suspicious. Imagine us promoting one of our own interviews. Very, very suspicious. Odd. The report also references these tweets by Ash. Um, So she tweeted on February the 14th, Valentine's Day. I don't get a lot of one-on-one time with Michael Gove, but he does follow me. So with that in mind, one, is it true that you were made aware by Birmingham City Council and counter-terrorism police that the anonymous letter was a hoax before you launched the Clark inquiry? Two, if so, how was it justifiable to launch an inquiry on the basis of a letter you know to be a hoax? Three, are you troubled by the fact the Trojan horse affair appears to present evidence that multiple findings in the Clark report were wholly or partially untrue? And four, why should British Muslims trust that you, as a minister, will treat them fairly when you launched an inquiry based on a letter you knew to be a hoax, supported a report which has had numerous allegations debunked, and used this report as a pretext to shape government policy? Now, the report describes these tweets as a Fred questioning Michael Gove's role in the affair. Now, it looks to me more like a Fred asking Michael Gove legitimate questions. She wants answers, Ash wants answers. She can tell me why in a moment. First, though, here's another tweet referenced in the report. So this is Ash tweeting Nuzgani MP, so she's a Conservative MP. Another MP criticising the New York Times Trojan Horse podcast, but failing to dispute any of the facts. And more worryingly, Nuzgani seems to be repeating a discredited claim. And the claims that Nuzgani is making, Brum is my home city and Khalid Mahmood MP is spot on. Brummies don't want their kids taught terrorism conspiracy theories or that girls are unequal to boys. And the policy exchange report describes this tweet as Ash condemning the Tory MP. Ash, you know a lot more about this case than I do, so I'm going to hand over to you. What's this row about? Why is um, this policy exchange report endorsed by Michael Gove so annoyed about some tweets you tweeted last February? 
So what, what the Trojan horse affair lays out is that this letter was really quickly identified as a hoax, but then it took on this kind of tautological power. So despite the letter being identified as a hoax, it was treated as a credible enough pretext to launch a series of investigations, which despite finding and agreeing that the letter was a hoax, then used the content of the letter and the narrative of the letter to support its own findings, which were, you know, in turn, some wholly or partially untrue. So it almost created this closed loop system where any one element of the narrative could be examined and to a significant degree discredited or shown to be an unreliable basis on which to shape public policy or to shape a a public debate around the role of Islam in schools. But when you took it all together, it was seen as, well, okay, you knock out this part, but what about this? You knock out this part and what about this part? And though each bit was unreliable, it became this really powerful force in shaping a moral panic. So that's what the Trojan Horse podcast explains. And of course, it does so in a hell of a lot more detail and in a way which is a lot more insightful than I just laid out here. And what happened when the podcast was released is that despite its popularity amongst listeners in the UK, there was a wall of silence around this podcast. Now, compare it to the kind of New York Times podcasts that have come out before. Take something like Serial, for instance. There was a media frenzy around it, even in the UK. So you would think that a podcast which examines a notorious series of events in British politics would be of interest to political journalists. And I was shocked, if not surprised, to find that that wasn't the case. There was a wall of silence and then almost a kind of consensus, which seemed to be, you know, formed within this sacred circle that, oh, it's a load of horseshit, it's partisan, you know, the likes of Melanie Phillips, the likes of Nick Timothy, Sonia Soda, they all came out and said, no, this is absolutely dreadful. I believe Sonny Hundle as well, but but I'm not sure if my memory is playing tricks on me there. And in trying to discredit the podcast, in fact, what all of these individuals did was pick out the claims which have been discredited in the podcast and then upholding them. And it made me think, well, what's going on here? Either you've not really paid close attention to to what is being said in this podcast, or you're being deliberately obtuse about what's in it so that you can, you know, maintain the integrity of, of these discredited reports. Now, I happen to think that it's most likely to be the latter because many of these journalists and politicians played quite a significant role in fanning the flames of this moral panic in the first place. So if you are to go, well, actually, there's some quite worrying findings in this podcast or questions which need to be answered by powerful people in politics and media, then you would have to start looking at your own conduct during that time. So that's why when the podcast came out, I wanted to interview Brian Reed and Hamza Syed. One is I wanted to do it because I do consider a lot of the work that New York Times puts out in terms of podcasts, the gold standard of podcasting. I think that there's a lot to learn from in terms of how you tell a story and how you make investigative journalism feel like something that is alive and engaging. And then the second thing is because it's a story that I remember really well. I remember reading the news about it and I was so 
disturbed by the lack of curiosity coming from colleagues in an industry that, although deeply flawed, I, I believe in the purpose of journalism. I, I believe in the idea that we should be asking difficult questions of powerful people. We should be questioning received narratives. Now, I thought that Michael Gove and Nick Timothy would be confident enough to just ignore the Trojan horse affair because there were enough journalists who did effectively ignore it or participate in an elite consensus that there was nothing to be taken seriously. So I am pleased that they were rattled enough to have to participate in this defensive sham of a think tank report that they've they've been spooked into it nearly you know a, a year later i'm not surprised that what they've tried to do is is characterize my questions as a campaign and deliberately during that time i limited all of my questions to ones which are on the basis of fact and the clarification of fact and the justification of actions of, of things that that we can all agree happened the same with nusrat ghani to go well hang on this is a claim which has been discredited so why are you repeating it it wasn't about going and you are an islamophobe and i think this about you you know, those are things which I think are perfectly legitimate political opinions to have. They're not necessarily questions that I would bother putting to any MP or indeed to any minister. Um, but what they had to do is characterize me and other journalists as effectively partisan campaigners. So we're left wing, we're anti-establishment or we're Muslim, in my case being, you know, all three. And therefore, we're not to be trusted. Our inquiries aren't the terrain of journalism. It's knocking on the door of harassment. It's a form of loudmouth protest and, and shouldn't be taken into account. I'm just surprised that they weren't confident enough to just ignore it. And it tells me that actually the journalism that was done by Brian Reader and Hamza Syed was really powerful and really important. And that Sometimes I feel that, you know, when I'm asking questions and they're being ignored, I'm just a dog barking at a train. But it's kind of satisfying to know that those questions, though they went unanswered, rattled them a little bit. So I'm going to keep doing it. I think that's a good response. I mean, uh, for people who want to get in depth on this issue, listen to the podcast, listen to the New York Times podcast, and you can watch Ash's much longer interview with the creators of that podcast, you know, more detail than we can manage here. Before we move on though, quickly, Ash, I just want to, you know, the argument, as far as I understand it, from Gove and Timothy and Policy Exchange is, yes, the letter which was warning about an Islamist plot to take over a bunch of schools may have been a hoax. But in researching, in, in investigating the letter, they found a real conspiracy. And so the accuracy or otherwise of the letter doesn't matter because what they found was an Islamist plot. And so they say the New York Times is New York Times podcast is based on a red herring because we were never concerned about the letter anyway. The letter was, you know, just an act of good fortune, which meant that we found a real conspiracy. Am I summarizing sort of their position and what would be your response to that? Yeah, that 
that that is their position and that's effectively what the Clark report says now what the Trojan Horse Affair podcast does is that it looks at the ways in which the Clark report in fact relies upon the letter to a significant degree despite agreeing that it's a hoax in order to come up with its findings there are some instances that are are true like there was some mooring material which i believe was distributed in a science class but then there are many other claims which have been taken up and repeated as gospel by the media which the trojan horse affair finds are either you know wholly untrue or partially untrue so then you've got to go so why why amass a series of anecdotes some of which are true many of them which are not what purpose is this serving? Well, what, what it does is that it tries to create this idea that when you have Muslim participation in a school, you've got Muslim majority schools because of the way catchment areas work. So if what you have is a degree of residential segregation on the basis of ethnicity and on the basis of class, that so you're going to see that reflected in the state school system, is that if you then allow that community to be represented at the level of teaching staff or at the level of teaching support staff or at the level of governors, that this is effectively an Islamist takeover. Well, what it does is that it places a whole community under suspicion and a whole range of community activities, which are fine for other religious and ethnic groups to to participate in. You're saying that there's a different a different set of standards for Muslims. Now, I happen to be a secularist. I'm somebody who thinks that in the state school system, you should educate children about different religions and you should encourage a spirit of curiosity uh, about different religions, encourage students to, to learn about different cultures. But generally, I think that religion shouldn't have a place in state schools. What we don't have in this country is actually a strict separation of religion and schools. So in the state school system at primary schools, you've got a rule which says, well, there needs to be a daily act of collective worship. At my school, despite the fact it was a non-religious state school, primary school, that was interpreted as an act of Christian prayer. Now, as far as I know, there haven't been any investigations done into either my primary school or any other primary school on the basis of the influence of Christianity in what are state schools. So there, there is an absence of, of a level playing field or a universal standard which is being implemented. There was scaremongering about one particular form of religion influencing primary schools, but absolutely no investigation or indeed curiosity about any other religion. So if if the outcome of that investigation was to go, actually, you know what, we need to have a series of consistent rules about the role of religion in primary schools, I wouldn't have a problem with it. That's not what happened. It was used as a pretext to surveil and throw suspicion on a particular community. So you could introduce even more restrictive legislation. It was a moral panic, which was, I think, deliberately adopted as an opportunity by the likes of Michael Gove to further their political agenda. Now, if you would only answer me directly, I'd put these questions to him. Instead, he's too busy being a wuss, referencing my tweets and mischaracterizing them rather than just answering the damn question. Um, we're going to move straight on to our final story. Wes Streeting is Shadow Health Secretary and tipped to be next Labour leader. But this weekend, he gave an interview to the Sunday Telegraph and used it to attack the BMA. That's the union that represents doctors. 
the article quotes Streeting saying this. Given that we have committed to more staff, I cannot for the life of me understand why the BMA is so hostile to the idea that with more staff must come better standards for patients, says Streeting. Whenever I point out the appalling state of access to primary care, where currently a record 2 million people are waiting more than a month to see a GP, I am treated like some sort of heretic by the BMA, who seem to think any criticism of patient access to primary care is somehow an attack on GPs. Their defensive attitudes are maddening, he continues. If anyone in the NHS thinks that they can demand more investment without demonstrating better standards for patients, they've got another thing coming. We are not going to have a something-for-nothing culture in the NHS with Labour, he said. Um, now, I mean, the idea that there is a something-for-nothing culture in the NHS will probably be news to all the people, you know, working loads of overtime for no pay and, you know, struggling to treat everyone they want to treat because... The service is underfunded and understaffed, but there we are. Let's go to Street. Let's, he elaborated on that interview on Sky News. As for the BMA, I mean, I was just responding in that interview of The Telegraph to criticism they levelled at me, because despite the fact that I announced the biggest expansion of NHS staff in history, because I had the temerity to, to say that we should also expect better service for patients in exchange for that investment, uh, because I, I think that it's unacceptable that people have to wait on the phone at eight o'clock in the morning to get through to GP. I have been treated like some kind of heretic by the BMA. And I'm afraid, um, you know, I do understand the pressure that doctors are under. They do a very difficult job against very difficult uh, backdrop. But what I'm saying is, if we're putting investment into the NHS, as the next Labour government will, we have got to expect better results for patients. And ultimately, it's my job to be the okay. patient's champion. I mean, you would assume that everyone thinks if you, if you give the NHS more money, there will be a better deal for patients because a big problem the NHS have is that it's been underfunded. Anyway, I mean, especially you know, given Labour's promise to provide record numbers of new doctors, good promise, that will only be fulfilled in about 10 years' time. Criticising patient care when there aren't enough doctors does sound a bit like it's aimed at GPs. Dr. Emma Runswick is Deputy Chair at the BMA. Sky News asked her about the streeting interview. We just uh, spoke to Wes Streeting there, Shadow Health Minister. He says he's not afraid to take you on. Uh, he calls you vested interests and says that you think he's a heretic for wanting better patient access. Uh, are you concerned that you perhaps don't have as good a relationship as, as you should with, with the man who may well be Health Secretary very soon? Well, certainly I'm disappointed in the, the rhetoric that, that Mr. Streeting is adopting. You know, this, well, this morning, he's replying to charges that you've made against him. Well, this, this morning he's, he's said in the Telegraph that NHS staff are looking for, for something for nothing. And I think, I think my members and, and many health staff across the UK will be absolutely gobsmacked by that because we are giving everything and receiving less than nothing in return, pay cuts, real terms pay cuts in return. And we agree that we want a better health service. You know, we're, we're working in it. I see patients, you know, every week who have been waiting for a long time to see us. And it's really devastating working in that, that situation where we know we're not providing the standards of care that we want to be. The solution isn't to attack the staff. The solution is to attack the government who are who are absolutely responsible um, for for driving our service into the ground with underfunding and staffing. It wasn't just GPs that Streeting was critical of, though. It seemed to be the NHS as a whole. And his solution: get the private sector even more involved than it already is. Here's what he said to Sky News. 
you've just referred to, to using the private sector more. Um, some would be astonished at seeing this policy coming from, from a Labour politician. You've also talked about the BMA, who we are going to be talking to later on in the programme, as vested interests. You say that they see you as a heretic for wanting better patient access and, you, and you're going to take them on. Um, how do you think these lines will go down with traditional Labour voters? Well, I, the last Labour government successfully used the private sector to bring down NHS waiting lists. And, you know, by the end of that Labour government, use of the private sector had fallen dramatically because the NHS was so good that people didn't feel the need to go private any longer. And, and as for the, the question of values... I think it's outrageous we've got a two-tier healthcare system in this country today where those who can pay to go private do and those who can't afford to go private are left behind. Or indeed, there are some people that are scrimping and scraping, even getting themselves into debt in order to get seen faster. That's not a fair and equitable situation. That's not the NHS living up to its founding principles. Um, and I think it's the right thing to do uh, to create a level playing field using uh, empty beds in the private sector so that people can see, be seen faster. So Streeting claims that the last Labour government initially increased private spending in the NHS when it took power, and he implies that this was a successful strategy and that private sector involvement eventually dropped because the NHS was operating so much better by the end. That claim seems questionable, though. This graph from Full Fact shows that NHS spending on private providers went up in the last five years of new Labour, and continued to rise at about the same rate under the Tories until 2013, when it dramatically shot up. Now, unfortunately, we can't go earlier than that because the figures don't exist. But, you know, maybe he can show us figures that showed us that it went dramatically down before 2006, but it doesn't look like it was a, a consistent decline of the use of the private sector. It's not the first time that Streeting has called for greater involvement of the private sector in the NHS either. So in an LBC interview last month, he said this. What I've said to the NHS is I recognise that there isn't an answer to the immediate crisis which doesn't require more investment, which is why we've committed to the workforce investment. But I've also been honest in saying that if the answer in this century is always more taxpayers' money into a 20th century model of care, there isn't going to be an NHS in the long term. So that's why if we're elected at the next election, Labour's job will be to grip the immediate crisis, but also to make the right long-term decisions so we've got an NHS fit for the future. Streeting also wrote this in The Guardian earlier this month. He says, I don't want working class people in pain, so I'd use private hospitals to bolster the NHS. So Streeting seems pretty keen on handing public money to private health firms. And it's worth noting that he's taken money from people with an interest in that project. One of those is hedge fund manager John Armitage. He used to give money to the Tories, but in January 2022, he gave £15,000 to Streeting to pay for his staff and office. His firm, Egerton Capital, owns more than $500 million worth of shares in United Health. That's one of the largest private health insurers in the United States. And a year ago, Streeting received £5,000 also for office costs from Lord Jonathan Mendelssohn. So at the time, he was involved in a private healthcare company called Europa Healthcare Limited, previously known as Europa Hospitals Limited. If you were to have suspicions about someone arguing that we should be using more of the private sector, if you think they're not necessarily being honest um, when it comes to what the NHS actually needs, then the fact that you're funded by people with an interest in private healthcare, that's not going to allay those suspicions, is it? Um, Ash, what do you make of Wes Streeting's recent interventions? 
Well, I think that it is an example of how the labor right, either by accident or by design, are quite incapable of pushing back against right-wing narrative making about the NHS. Because one of the things that we've discussed on this show is that an NHS staffing crisis, an NHS beds crisis, an NHS waiting list crisis isn't necessarily terrible thing for a conservative government if you've got a media and a think tank ecology which is hell-bent on saying that this is a result of NHS mismanagement. This is a result of inefficiencies in the public sector. And if only they learned more from private enterprise or if there was an expanded role for private healthcare providers in the NHS, then you wouldn't see these things happening. Now, this is exactly the kind of narrative that you're seeing coming from think tanks like Policy Exchange, like the Institute for Economic Affairs, like the Taxpayers Alliance. And what you need is a Labour Party and a liberal and left-wing section of the media going, no, actually, this is just a direct result of the reforms which were implemented by successive conservative governments, the fact that you took a load of money out of the NHS, the fact that you made working conditions worse for clinicians, the fact that you gutted admin capacity, the fact that real wages haven't kept up with the cost of living and so on and so forth, right? You go all these things that patients are experiencing, the public are experiencing as a consequence of these policies. Now, rather than doing that, I think what Wes Streeting is doing is he's going, okay, well, one of the things that we're getting back from focus groups is that lots of people have had some really negative experiences of the NHS. Now, that might be as a patient themselves struggling to get an an appointment or there were problems with the quality of care that you received, or it might be as, you know, somebody who is trying to get one of their relatives access to the care that they need. Because of those, you know, pressures on beds because of the staffing exodus from the NHS and also because of, you know, the the waiting list. You do have lots of people who have some really negative experiences of NHS treatment. Now, I don't think that there's particularly complicated reason for that. And I don't think it's because nurses and doctors and radiographers and, you know, receptionists at, you know, GP practices are bad people. I think that it's because they're having to do an awful lot more with less. The something for nothing culture has come from 12 years of Tory governance. Now, that should be a really easy line for any Labour shadow health secretary to stick. You just go, look, it's not rocket science. What the NHS needs is more money. We're going to give it to them and we're going to do it, you know, paying for it in these ways. And you're going to see standards improve. I promise you standards are going to improve if we give them more money. And I think it's a really simple line. But instead of, of doing that, you know, I think because what Labour want to do is look like they're slaying the sacred cows of the left. They think that that's what adds up to being a sensible government in waiting, that they're instead effectively attacking doctors and attacking the BMA. So I think that it's, it's, it's on the basis of untruths. And I also think that it's, it's strategically quite fucked. Um, I don't think it's smart to reinforce lies which have come from your political opponents. I'd like to see a debate between you and Wes Streeting as well on this topic. We need to get Michael Gove and Wes Streeting in the studio. We've got an update on an earlier story. 
I said earlier there was a meeting going ahead between the Royal College of Nurses and Steve Barclay, the health secretary. We sort of intimated um, that given the government weren't willing to talk about pay, it probably wouldn't achieve very much. That meeting has now ended and it hasn't achieved very much. So the, the Royal College of Nursing have said that they refuse to talk about pay and therefore the strike will, you know, unless something dramatic changes, be going ahead on Thursday. We'll, of course, be talking about that later on in the week. For now, thank you everyone for your super chats tonight. Ash Sarkar, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And we'll be back on Wednesday, so make sure to hit subscribe. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.